Hello, listeners. My name is Brian Winston. Welcome to the November 11th edition of Unity in Christ. As a parent, it is delightful to see when children promptly obey their parents. The days when they are better at following their parents' words makes them seem more pleasant than usual. But even the children seem happier when they obey their parents. And on those days, they are more likely to rest in our arms. Does this happen in my family only? I bet you've had similar experiences as well. As I reflect on my youth, I think I was like that too. If I were good on certain days by listening to my parents, I felt proud of myself, and I expected that I would be commended by my parents. I even imagined receiving a toy or a treat. Yet, this is not limited to the relationships of parents and their children. It appears often in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Although we do not always follow God's Word, we feel good when we are determined to obey and feel like we are closer to Him, in that He will commend us and perhaps reward us. Have you had such an experience? I have often felt this feeling, that feeling that God will be delighted in us and commend us and maybe even reward us with at least some small prize for obeying and following His Word. Perhaps such thoughts are not wrong. The obvious result is we will be closer to God and God will be happy and commend us when we obey His Word. The prophet Samuel said, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. When we obey God, we will be delighted and we will be closer to Him. Also, we who obey will feel good. The joy that we receive from obeying the Word of God cannot be compared to the joy that anything else brings us. However, we sometimes misunderstand. What I mean is, as I mentioned earlier, children become proud of themselves for being obedient to their parents, and they anticipate a reward from their parents. It would be good if a parent does buy their children a toy, a snack, or a reward, as the child had hoped for. But if not, then the child might be disappointed and sad. Moreover, they might even regret being good. Couldn't we also have such an unreasonable expectation about God? We could anticipate a reward or gift from God because of our obedience to Him, or hope that God providing us with clear path to something we want because we obeyed Him. Of course, God can reward us and clear that path for us. However, that is up to God. It's His choice, and it's not mandatory for Him to do so. He may or may not reward us. He may open up a path for us, or he may block our path. God has authority over everything. What we have to remember 
is that God always chooses what is best for us. If we remember that, then our feelings will not be determined by whether God rewards us or not, or whether he opens a path or not. We would rather ask God's will, which brings us the best result.
We can understand that we will not always be rewarded for our obedience to God's Word. It is stranger to be rewarded for what is due us. What if you obeyed God's Word and you are okay with not being rewarded? But what if you are being persecuted? Now, can you accept that? Generally, isn't it people's idea to hope for some reward for obeying God's word? However, what if we are persecuted and experience hardship, then how will our faith be? Will we still be praising and coming to God? Or would we depart from God's word thinking, what is this? I'm having difficulty because I obeyed God's word. It would be better not to obey his word. To be honest with you, I frequently choose the latter, saying to myself, I tried to obey God's word and had more difficulty, but one scene in the Bible changed my mind. It is an incident happened in Acts chapter 16. Converted Apostle Paul preached the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever he went, and through his teaching there were miracles of many souls returning to God. Churches were built, and many Gentiles came to know God. In Acts chapter 16, verses 4 and 5, many churches in various cities were strengthened in faith, and believers of Christ grew in numbers. How precious this must have been! In the midst of it, Apostle Paul wanted to go to Asia to deliver the message of Jesus. However, in Acts 16.6, the Holy Spirit prohibited him from preaching the gospel in Asia. So, Apostle Paul and his companions headed to the region of Mysia. And from there, they wanted to go northeast to the region of Bithynia to preach the gospel. However, the Holy Spirit forbid them again. We find this in Acts chapter 16, verse 7, And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Apostle Paul and his companions obeyed the Spirit and went to Troas, in the opposite direction from Bithynia. And we well know Paul saw a vision of a Macedonian man asking for help in Troas.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is God's Word in a Turbulent World, based on Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. Luke chapter 13, the New Testament, just a couple of books before Acts, which we've been studying for a long time. I I need to tell you that this week has been a challenging week of sermon preparation as I have sought the Lord about what He wants to say to us in His Word this weekend. And no matter how much I studied, I I just couldn't get peace about a, a particular text. Usually that's much simpler when we're in a series, you just preach the next text in in a Bible book, for example. But with this study in the book of Acts ending, it's pretty wide open, and obviously there is no shortage of material in these 66 books. But as I just spent a lot of time in prayer and in the Word, just day in and day out, the only way I can describe it is just a lack of peace about a particular direction, all the way up to Friday night. I just finished reading the two-volume autobiography of Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite pastors in history. So he would preach on Sunday morning, and Spurgeon would never start his sermon preparation until Saturday night. So so I was spending Friday night in Spurgeon's shoes. Side note, one quick story. One one Saturday night, so he starts doing his study, and it's getting late in the night, and kind of like I'm describing, he just couldn't land anywhere. Nothing was... Just couldn't get peace about it. preaching a particular text, and it was getting really late. So he went to his wife, Suzanne, and he was kind of frantic. Just, I don't know what to do. Like, I've got to preach in the morning. I, and she is like, Calm down, honey. Why don't you just go to sleep and get some rest? And he said, Well, will you wake me up extra early in the morning so I can make sure? Because I got to preach tomorrow. And she's like, I'll, I'll take care of it. I'll wake you up early. And so they go to bed. Well, in the middle of the night, while he's sleeping, he starts. And this is not just some legend that somebody's told about. And this is him telling the story in his autobiography. He says while he's sleeping, apparently in the middle of his sleep, he just starts preaching, just starts talking in his sleep. And Susanna sitting next to him, pulls out a pen and paper and starts taking notes. <laughs> and so uh, she's so excited. So that once he finishes, she goes back to sleep. And so they're, they're both sleeping. Well, they sleep past the time where she was supposed to wake him up. And uh, she was so excited, and he wakes up. He's like, you were supposed to wake me up. She's like, honey, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't wake you up early, but I have good news for you. And she pulls out the notes. She starts reading. And he's like, that's what I'm going to preach. She's like, you already did. And so, uh, so that's what he preached that morning. So anyway, I'm just wondering, do I need to ask Heather to, to take some notes tonight? Like, what, how's this going to play out? But anyway, things didn't get to that point. But Friday night, as I was praying, It just hit me that as we would be gathering this morning, Hurricane Irma, potentially one of the worst storms of our generation, a Category 4 storm, would be barreling down on our countrymen, including many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in Florida. That storm, obviously following severe flooding from Hurricane Harvey affecting people across the Houston area, then start thinking about what's going on beyond our country, the turmoil we see all over the news, whether it's other natural disasters like the strongest earthquake in a century hitting Mexico this week, killing many. Many of you have seen the flooding in India, Bangladesh, Nepal that's affecting over 40 million people right now. 
And then you think about moral disasters, like hundreds of thousands of Rohingya men, women, and children who are fleeing Myanmar right now. Think about North Korea continuing to test missiles and threaten nuclear war. And then on a more personal level, late Friday night I got a call that my good friend Jonathan, who I mentioned a few weeks ago, has been battling a brain tumor. I got a call late Friday night that he had just gone to be with the Lord. So I sat there processing all of this. And I thought, I, I don't think I'm the only one in the world whose heart is heavy when I see all this. As I was praying, particularly realizing we would be meeting right now while a massive hurricane is hitting our country, one text immediately came to my mind. And I had a clear sense that this is the word of the Lord for us on this day. In light of all that's going on around us right now in the world, we desperately need to pause and hear the word of God. So I, I titled the sermon, God's Word in a Turbulent World. It's, it's one of the things I love about this book, the Bible. It's, it's not disconnected from our lives. It speaks into our lives right where we are. So I just want us, for the next few minutes, I want us to listen to God. And then I want to let that lead us into a time of prayer. Extended time of prayer, particularly for people around us in our lives, in our country, in the world right now who are walking through difficult, even disastrous days. Does that sound good? All right. So why would Luke 13? Well, when we think about evil, suffering in the world, there's really two main categories, moral and natural. So natural evil or natural disasters would include hurricanes, flooding, earthquakes, tsunamis, tornadoes, monsoons. And then moral disaster or evil would include everything from wars and terrorism to murder to rape like we see among the Rohingya or with ISIS or on the Korean Peninsula. And in Luke 13, this short text, Jesus addresses both moral and natural disasters. Listen to what Luke, so Luke who wrote the book of Acts, which we've been studying, writes in verse 1 of chapter 13. He says, there were some present at that very time who told him, him being Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what, what does that text mean? Why would that text come to my mind when thinking about all that's going on in the world around us right now? There are some things we, we're not completely sure of in this text. So this is a teaching from Jesus that's unique to Luke's gospel. So we don't have other accounts that can kind of fill in the blanks. But we see two events described here. One in which some Galileans were offering sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem, and apparently they were killed by Roman troops in an ambush of sorts. Then the second event refers to a tower in Siloam that fell all of a sudden, fell unexpectedly killing 18 people. 
So you have pictures here of both a moral and natural disaster and people coming to Jesus to ask him to comment on those events. So it would almost be like Jesus going to Jesus today and saying, how are we to think about Hurricane Harvey and Irma? About monsoons and flooding in India? How do we think about what's going on amongst the Rohingya or in North Korea right now? And in this text, God helps us to think about these things in at least four ways. So four reminders that God gives us in his word as we look around us in the world at moral and natural disasters. You might, you might write them down. So reminder number one in God's word as we look at moral, natural disasters in the world. We remember that this world is not predictable for any of us. This world is not predictable for any of us. Think about both of these events in Luke chapter 13. The people in both of these groups died in a way they didn't see coming. Suddenly, surprisingly, unexpectedly. In fact, both groups died at a place and at a time when they probably felt the most safe and secure. I mean, how closer could you be to God? Safety than when you're offering sacrifices at the temple and the worship of God. And what more secure place to be than next to a tower erected to defend the city against attack? And Jesus takes these two instances to remind his hearers that there is no place in this world that is 100% safe and secure. This world is not predictable for any of us. Anything could happen at any time. I think about the people affected by these events in Luke 13. When, when they woke up in the morning, on the morning they died, none of them were thinking, this might be my last day. No, they were thinking, I'm going to go to the temple and offer some sacrifices and I'm going to do this or that with my family. I'm going to run some errands. I'll, I'll take the shortcut by the tower as I go to this place and I'll go to that place. They didn't see this coming. And this is the way moral natural disasters like this work in our lives, right? Suffering works this way. This is the way it works. So you go to a routine exam and all of a sudden, turns into a life-altering event. You, you answer a call on the phone, just expecting normal on the other side. Instead, you hear somebody crying and they share news with you that turns the rest of your life upside down. I have talked with men and women across this church in just the last month. I think about conversations I've had the last couple of weeks with people in this church who've walked through these kinds of events and none of them expected it. And then that's just in our lives. Think about it on a grander scale. Let me state the obvious. None of us knows when or where the next hurricane is coming. None of us knows when or what North Korea is going to do next. And on and on and on and on. This world is not predictable for any of us. Life is not predictable for any of us. It's certainly not guaranteed. And this is not just for those in Texas or Florida or India or Myanmar or South Korea. This is for us right here in this room at other campuses. Not one of us in this room right now or any other campus is guaranteed to make it through today. You realize this. Like you are not guaranteed to make it through the end of this service. I'm not, you're not. None of us is guaranteed to be here next week. And I really don't mean to be depressing, but I do mean to be eye-opening. Natural moral disasters remind us that today could be the last day for anyone among us. 
this affected the way our forefathers in the faith thought. Jonathan Edwards wrote in his resolutions. He would recite these every single day. And one of them was, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. You might think, well, that's depressing. It's morbid. Why would you live that way? Resolved to think on much on all occasions, to think a lot of my own dying and the common circumstances which attend death. Why would you live like that? Here's why. Because, because you need to remember that your house and your bank account and your health and your exercising and your car and your nice job and your comfortable life guarantee you nothing in this world. If you cling to the things of this world, you will cling to them in vain. Because this world is unpredictable. This is a sobering reality that Scripture never shies away from. And God, in this word, in light of what's going on around in the, us in the world, is reminding us this world is not predictable. So hear the word of God. Don't put your hope in this world. And don't let the adversary blind you to this world's unpredictability. The devil would like nothing more than for us to see Fox News, CNN on TV, on our phone, flip to another channel, another app, turn over, say, this that could never happen where I am, when it could absolutely happen to any one of us today. Natural moral disasters remind us that this world is not predictable for any of us. Which leads directly to the second reminder. Death is the penalty for sin that plagues all of us. Natural moral disasters, things like this we're seeing in the world, remind us that death is the penalty for sin that plagues all of us. So the background here is you've got a group of people coming to Jesus in Luke 13 who believe that any sort of tragedy that happens to somebody is due to a particular sin in their life. Remember the picture in John chapter 9, there's a man born blind. People come to Jesus and they say, what happens to this man who was born blind? Is that because of his sin? Is that because of his parents' sin? It's the picture of Job's supposed friends who after disaster strikes Job and his entire household, killing all of his children, they say to him, well, you obviously sinned against God, Job. That's why this happened. Or at least your children, they sinned against God. That's why this happened to them. The crowd in Luke 13 just assumed that these Galileans or these people crushed by the tower were worse sinners than others. They must have done something to deserve this, they thought. And in response, Jesus confronts them with a reality that we all need to hear. The reality that we are all sinners and we are all equal in the sense that we all deserve death. Verse 2, he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. Same thing, verse 4. Are those 18 on those whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. In other words, the fact that these people died during these disasters has nothing to do with their righteousness or unrighteousness. Now, don't misunderstand this. Jesus is not saying that these people who died were innocent. Instead, Jesus is saying that no one is innocent. We've all sinned, and the penalty of sin is death for all people. And any attempt to compare your sin to other sin in an event like this is fruitless because all of us are guilty of sin, and all of us are deserving of death. Now, I do want to be careful here because we have evidence in the Old Testament, for example, of God bringing judgment upon particular people in their sin 
Sometimes he does that through calamity. I'm, I'm reading about that in my quiet time right now. Ezekiel just got finished Jeremiah Lamentations. God is bringing judgment upon his people in Jerusalem in response to their rebellion. But what Jesus is saying very clearly here is that it is our, not our place to play God and determine whose sin caused what. Instead, events like this should remind us of the penalty of sin, death, that plagues every single one of us. And once we realize that, it changes everything about our perspective. Once we realize that, the question is no longer, why did this happen to them? Instead, the question is now, why has this not happened to me? That's a different way to think. And it's not how we think. We think we deserve blessing and prosperity. We think anything that bad that happens to us is unfair to us and causes us to call into question the very goodness of God or the power of God, maybe the existence of God altogether. But that's not the way Jesus sees it. Instead, he affirms the sinfulness of all people. And he reminds these people that death is the penalty for their sin, which they deserve. We all deserve. So don't miss this. Please don't miss this. Because it is so common for sinners like you and me in the face of natural moral disasters to start treating God like a whipping boy. People start posting, tweeting, commenting, blogging, crying out. How could God be good and allow this? Maybe God is weak and doesn't have power to stop this. I don't even think there is a God. When all along we fail to realize the only reason we have breath in this gathering right now is because of the grace and mercy of Almighty God. The only reason, so don't miss this. This is such a different way to think. It's not the way the world thinks. It's such a different way to think. The only reason we as sinners are not cast away from God's holy presence right now into eternal suffering is because his great mercy is keeping us. So God help us to realize the universal seriousness of all of our sin. And be careful, ladies and gentlemen, be very careful. Do not for an instant think that any person who has lost their life in this or that disaster, that any person has to flee their country as a refugee is a worse sinner than you. We have this subtle yet oh so sinful tendency to look at what happens in the Middle East or this or that part of the world and we think well, we're not as bad a sinner as them when the reality is we are all sinners at the core. I urge you, do not let world events cause you to think of others as sinful and yourself as righteous for that self-righteousness is in and of itself dreadfully sinful. Moral, natural disasters remind us we live in a world of sin and we're all sinners and we all deserve death. Which means we all need the grace of Almighty God. Which takes us to the third reminder. Natural, moral disasters remind us then that we must repent and be reconciled to God. We must repent and be reconciled to God. This is the word of God. It's the primary point of Luke chapter 13. It's the word of God to us. Let's hear it. Like, think about the context. Jesus is addressing Jewish people who had grown cold toward God. People who lost sight of their own sinfulness, their need for repentance in their lives. And what's interesting is, Jesus doesn't take their question about these events and use it to have some discussion and dialogue about the mystery of God's ways. This was his chance to do that. This was Jesus' chance to explain to them and to us why bad things like this happen to people. It's a question we all ask. 
This is his chance to answer it. But he doesn't do it. Instead, what he does is he looks them square in the eye and he says, repent. Turn from your sin back to God. He looks them square in the eye. He gives them the same message he came preaching from the very beginning. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. He gives the, the same message we saw all over the book of Acts, over and over and over again. Acts 3.19, repent and turn to God that your sins may be wiped out. That's what it means to repent, to turn from your sins. So think about it. This world is not predictable for any of us. Death is the penalty for sin which plays all of us. So Jesus says, repent. Don't, don't sit around trying to figure out why this or that happened. Don't try to figure out whose sin caused what. Please hear this, because God is saying in his word to us right now the exact same thing Jesus said on that day. And look around you. Sin is universal in all of us, which means death is inevitable for each of us. Nothing in this world is predictable. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. So repent while you still have time today. To use this picture, yes, right now, a storm is coming that will affect South Florida. But in a much, much more serious way, the storm of God's holy, righteous judgment is coming, and it will affect every single one of us. So I ask you this morning, right where you're sitting, are you right with God right now? There's no more important question you could answer on Sunday, September 10th, than this. Are you, where you're sitting right now, here, other campuses, are you right with God right now? Are you toying with sin in your life? Repent. Has your heart grown cold toward God? Re repent. Are you running from God? Are you living right now in willful, deliberate sin? Repent. Have you grown apathetic in your relationship with God? Repent. Cast yourself right now on the mercy of God today and plead for his grace. And he will give it. He will give it. My Bible reading plan this morning is in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love, O Lord. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Hear this good news. You repent. You turn from your sin right now. The mercy, the steadfast love of God is waiting for you. He will blot out all your transgressions. He has sent his son. This is the great news of the gospel. God has sent his son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for sin that plagues all of us. He has died for us. We sang it a minute ago. Here, you stood in my place. He paid the price. He endured the judgment we deserve for us so that we can repent, we can come to him. The very fact that we can repent is picture of the grace and mercy of God. So don't, don't turn a blind eye and deaf ear to divine mercy. Repent and be reconciled to God. In light of everything on going around, around us in the world. This is the word of God. He's looking straight at your heart saying, repent. Be reconciled to him. And then, flowing from that final reminder, natural moral disasters remind us that we must live with urgency for what matters in eternity. We are surrounded by so much triviality in the world. Would you just 
for a moment, feel the weight of this text in light of the world around us. Life is fleeting. It's the word of God. Life is fleeting. I've been memorizing just different parts of the Psalms. Psalm 39, 4. Oh Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. The psalmist says, I need you to remind me how fleeting I am. We need to be reminded of that. James 4.14, your life is, sure, what's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You're a vapor. You're here one second, gone the next. Like a mist, a vapor. You're not here for very long. Life is fleeting for every one of us and eternity is coming. Every single one of us in this room and other campuses is going to stand before Almighty God very soon. You're gonna stand before God very soon. In your sin, on your own, you will not be able to withstand his judgment. You need Jesus. You need Jesus now. Because without him, you will perish forever. This is not just a game. We're talking about forever. This is not just church kind of routine. Like we're talking about eternal realities here. Repent now before God or perish forever. I was in the other part of my quiet time this morning, Ezekiel, in Bible reading plan, like, ah, the prophet was warning and the people were saying, we're just gonna, we're gonna wait. Like, that's not gonna happen anytime soon. He's like, it's coming. And they wouldn't listen. Don't think it's not gonna happen anytime soon. You're not guaranteed to make it to the rest of the service. They repent now or perish forever. And this is the word of God. And, and then when you repent, for God's sake, call your family and friends and neighbors and co-workers to repent. Like eternity's not just coming for you, it's coming for them. Just like we, we're giving warnings all across South Florida, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Like how much more should we give warnings? The storm of God's holy righteous judgment is coming. People need to hear the danger that they are in and the grace that God will give if they will repent. So spend your life making this message known with urgency. That's what's gonna matter in eternity. Oh, brothers and sisters, live for what matters in eternity because there's, there's coming a day very, very, very soon when it will not matter how much money you made. It won't matter how nice your car, your house, or your clothes were. It won't matter one thing you've accumulated in this life because all that stuff's gonna burn up in the fire. So live today with urgency for what is gonna matter in eternity. I mentioned my friend Jonathan. This is a brother who lived for what mattered. So just picture the scene. Friday night, he's in a hospice bed in his home. He's surrounded by his wife and his three young kids who love and adore him. Poured his life into. Friends shared life with him. And this, this is a brother who, uh, who started a company with one friend in Afghanistan because he wanted to shine the light of Christ there. He has lived with urgency for what matters in eternity. So, one of those friends who was at the house called me late Friday night. In tears, he just, uh, he tells me a story. What happened? He got friends, family gathered around his bed. His breathing was really slow. They could tell this was, this was it. 
And they're just praying, they're reading the word aloud, trusting maybe he can hear. They were singing, the song we sang a couple weeks ago, they sang, Because He Lives. And they got to that last verse. Remember what it is? Then one day I'll cross the river, I'll fight life's final war with pain, and then as death gives way to victory, I'll see the lights of glory, and I'll know he lives. They sung the last chorus, and right then, Jonathan took his last breath. Think about your life. What's going to matter on that day for you? Live today with urgency, then, for that, that day. If ever I 
You're now with Unity in Christ, powered by Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to hear from you. If you have any comments or testimony that you want to share with us, please email it to askhsgm at gmail.com. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts. You can easily play this week's or past week's program, or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Following is the program called Questions from the Bible. Hello, everyone. This is Susan Holtgrew, your host for our program, Questions from the Bible. It is already past mid-November and closing in on Thanksgiving Day. We Americans go through a lot of trouble busying ourselves and preparing for Thanksgiving just as much as we do for Christmas. (laughs) Maybe even more. Houses get decorated with pumpkins and fall leaves, and grocery stores are packed with people buying turkeys and pumpkin pies. Many people strategically plan out their shopping trips so they don't miss a deal. But I wonder how many people give thanks to God in the true meaning of Thanksgiving. Wondering about how many people come to God with thanks, a scene from the Bible comes to mind. It is the passage where Jesus heals ten lepers. After they were cleansed, only one of the ten came back to Jesus and thanked him. And Jesus asks this man a question. In today's questions from the Bible, we will look at the question from Luke chapter 17, verse 17, where Jesus asks, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? The incident of Jesus healing the ten lepers is from Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. On his way to Jerusalem, Jesus passes through a village and meets ten lepers. They look at Jesus from afar, not coming closer, because according to the laws of Moses, Lepers had to live outside the limits of the other Israelites and maintain a certain distance. If they came close to others, they would have to shout, Unclean! Unclean! and avoid coming in contact with them. This is why the lepers stood at a distance. If Jesus did not come to them, they could never go to him. But Jesus came and met these lepers, who were prohibited from ever coming in contact with other people. These ten lepers had heard the rumors about Jesus and that he had performed many miracles of chasing away demons and healing the sick. They believed this Jesus could also cure them of their disease. So they raised their voices to him, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They had no need to prove to Jesus how righteous they were or how well they kept the law. All they could do was beg for mercy. To these lepers begging for mercy, Jesus tells them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, according to the laws of Moses, 
Anyone cured of leprosy must go to the priest and show themselves for examination and give their offering. In a different passage where Jesus healed another leper, he told the leper after healing him to go show his body to the priest and give an offering. But here, interestingly, Jesus tells the lepers to show themselves to the priest without having healed them. He is asking for faith. The ten lepers, believing in Jesus' word, obey and go to the priest. Amazingly, they are healed on the way, and verse 14 attests to the fact that as they were going, they were cleansed. All ten were cleansed at the same time. However, one of these ten turned back glorifying God with a loud voice after seeing he was healed. The Bible tells only one fact about this person. It is that he was a Samaritan. A Samaritan who Jews considered impure and not worth associating with. Just that one person came back to Jesus, fell to his feet, and gave thanks. In Luke chapter 17, verses 17 through 18, Jesus asks the man, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? Before, when reading this part, I did not fully understand Jesus' question. This part of asking the cleansed leper where the other nine were and why they didn't return to give glory to God. Isn't this something he should ask the nine who did not return and not the one who did? It seemed Jesus was reprimanding the wrong person. Just like when a teacher would wrongly scold the students present in class that they should not be like the tardy students. I used to always think, why is the teacher saying that when the people who need to hear it are not even here? But reading this passage in Luke again, this question really hit me. This is actually a question for me. I used to think I was just like the one person who came back and gave thanks after being cleansed. So I thought this reprimanding message had nothing to do with me. But seeing myself hurrying off elsewhere when I should come back to Jesus and give proper thanks, I realized I was just like the nine who did not return. The nine may have happily walked off in search of their next step in life to do the things they could not do as a leper and to meet their loved ones. But knowing that it was Jesus who healed him, the Samaritan returned to give thanks and came upon the most important moment of his life. He was able to come close to Jesus, who he had only looked at from afar, and directly hear the gospel. In Luke chapter 17, verse 19, Jesus said to the Samaritan who came back, Stand up and go, your faith has made you well. Jesus announced that this Samaritan had become a saved person of God. What about you? Have you come forward with thanks from being cleansed? Do you give praise with thankfulness for the grace he pours upon you every day? With thanksgiving not so far away, I pray that we can put away all the busyness of our lives and give the utmost sincere thanks to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is also my hope that this Thanksgiving is one where you can meet and experience the grace of our Lord Jesus. 
This ends our program for Questions from the Bible for today, and I look forward to speaking with you next time. Thank you, and God bless you.
descend from above Heaven's peace and perfect justice Kiss the guilty world in love In obedience to the Holy Spirit, Apostle Paul and his companions did not go to Asia, but left for Macedonia and arrived at Philippi, the first city in Macedonia. In Philippi, they met Lydia, a woman who dealt in purple cloth. She and all of her family came to accept Jesus and were baptized. They also cast out a demon from a servant girl. It seemed like things were going well when they obeyed God. They were rewarded through the work of the Holy Spirit. But as we know, the owner of the servant girl accused Paul and Silas because he realized he could no longer make money from the servant girl who was cured of the demon possession. The crowd attacked Paul and Silas, and they were stripped and beaten. Paul and Silas were imprisoned. They obeyed God, but they actually suffered. What would be our reaction if we were in a situation like them? Maybe we might think we were unjustly treated, beaten, imprisoned, and suffered for obeying God. They might have thought we should have gone to Asia. However, how Apostle Paul reacted changed my mind. Paul and Silas, who were imprisoned, did not complain or regret what they had done. They prayed and praised God inside the prison. This is Acts chapter 16, 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I thought deeply about this scene. Paul and Silas prayed and praised God. It might not sound special when we read it in passing, but the Bible says that they prayed first and then praised God. They did not praise God before they prayed. I imagined all that happened to them. Paul followed the vision and the voice that was from the Holy Spirit to Philippi, turning away from Asia. They were unjustly stripped and beaten. They were shackled by their ankles in prison. They were hurting everywhere. They were probably groaning in pain. At the moment they were hurting, they began to pray to God, Father, we are hurting. We listen to your voice and we are here. But we were beaten and are in prison. I don't know, maybe this was how he started his prayer. However, they prayed, and I believe they talked to God in their prayer, and I believe God let them know His will, and I believe they came to know His faithful and marvelous plans. That is why their prayers were changed to praise. And the aftermath story we all know, there was an earthquake, and through that, the jailer and his family became believers in Christ. 
It is not whether we are rewarded or not. It is not whether we experience hardship or not while obeying God. The point is that when we obey, God works through us. The prize for obeying may or may not be given immediately after we obey. Our path may be opened or may be closed by our obedience, but everything happens according to His plan for the glory of the Lord. Obedience may not bring us a prize or reward right away. Rather, it may bring us some suffering. However, remember, our reward ceremony does not happen in this world. The final day, when we stand in front of the Lord, God will grant us every reward for every time we were obedient. I hope you will be obedient to God, anticipating that day. Before we end, I will read from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Thank you for joining us today. I will see you again next week. God bless. Who am I that the Lord of all the earth Would care to know my name Would care to feel my hurt Who am I that the bright and morning star Would choose to light the way for my ever-wandering heart Not because of who I am But because of what you've done Not because of what I've done But because of who you are I am a flower quickly fading Here today and gone
done Not because of what I've done But because of who 